When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Elson? I'm great. It's the day with the most sunlight, so I'm pretty excited. What an interesting day to be recording this. I didn't even think about that, because this is basically about an extended summer without summer-like conditions, which led to some of the earliest and most well-known science fiction. A very, very dark summer indeed. Before we get to that story, I want to thank our patrons. Thank you, patrons. Thank you for everything you do. We could not make Strange Familiars without you. If you want to help us make Strange Familiars and get more content besides, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Our patrons get two full extra episodes of Strange Familiars every month, so you're helping us make the show. You're getting extra content as well. There's all different tiers of support there, all different options And there are payment options. You can either pay monthly or yearly. If you choose the yearly option, you get a discount. You can check it all out again at patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. I was working on a project that deals with William Rossetti, who was one of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So if you're unfamiliar with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, they were a group of artists who formed in the late 1840s and are responsible for what's probably more well-known are these sort of like beautiful pictures of sort of classic. It's often like medieval maidens and stuff, very beautiful. Yeah, and in in this earliest incarnation of what we call sort of like the classic seven Pre-Raphaelite artists, a lot of them have to do with working conditions too, and they're, they're pretty ahead of the curve as far as they're thinking they were derided by a lot of critics at the time, but their works sort of extended and then generations of people became enamored with the Pre-Raphaelites and went on to work in that sort of style that became popular. Well, it has its ups and downs. It was popular in the, the 70s and popular in the 90s and sort of fell out of favor. And I'm hoping to bring the Pre-Raphaelites back <laughs> for the 20s because I've missed them. And so I was working on this project. We were at the Philadelphia Museum of Art recently. Mm-hmm. And they had a few of these pre-Raphaelite paintings there. They have a bigger collection at the Delaware Art Museum. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you're going to go, if you're stateside, you don't have a chance, like I've never been to England, but if you're 
if you want to see like great pre-Raphaelite art, the Delaware Art Museum has probably the largest stateside collection. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. But they had some major works too at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And we had prints of a couple of these paintings that they had there. And to see them up close was stunning. The depth and the color and it's just... Like the prints said, look great, right? Mm-hmm. The, the prints look fantastic. But to see those paintings in person, wow, what talent, what talent. You know, I think sometimes artists are judged on their subject matter. Yeah, and if the, if it's an unfavorable subject matter for the time period... Uh, the work itself is sort of secondary. And I think that's like, we think of that as being sort of a postmodern approach. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have the, you have to have the cause or the reason or your background for your art. Right, right. And that becomes paramount to the, maybe the technical ability. I understand the merit of that, but we think of that as a very postmodern concept when I, I think that that's always been how we judge things because we, we judge through our own lens, which is something we're going to talk about when we discuss this moment on film, which is, there, there are at least four films that cover this topic, and we're going to discuss that in a patron episode. Yeah. Touch on it briefly tonight, but discuss it more in depth, the sort of ridiculousness of some of it and, and the differences in the, the different generations' ideas of, of what happened um, during the summertime. So not to throw you off track, I just wanted to comment. I brought to mind these pre painters who were super talented. Mm-hmm. And again, it's my opinion they were judged because they were doing sort of these scenes, these idealized scenes of like medieval and Renaissance uh, women and so forth. And I think they were really judged on, the, on their subject matter sometimes. Yeah, I was reading even about how uh, Rossetti, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, even in his choice of uh, red-haired women, that was not something that was deemed an attractive quality at the time. Hmm. He sort of liked what for the time would have been unconventional or unusual looking women. And so William Rossetti was sort of the archivist and librarian for the pre-Raphaelite artists. His brother and sister are more famous, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, that became probably the star standout of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. And But their sister, Christina, was a poet as well. And I mean, I remember as a kid learning her poem, Who Has Seen the Wind? It's, you know, it's a short poem and it's something that they teach kids when they're learning poetry for the first time sometimes. I've done a musical uh, rendition of one of her poems, or musical setting, I suppose, of one of her poems, Uphill. Oh, is that that famous Kate Bush song? <laughs> no. <laughs> Who would have thunk? Ah, that's another this is a summer topic. No. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I was doing this research and reading about the family lineage. And their uncle was this man named Dr. John Polidori. And I was like, oh, that really sounds familiar. It's an unusual name, right? Yeah. Like, it, like these are like all very prestigious Italian families. Like, why does that sound familiar? And I looked it up. I was like, oh, I remembered this like abundance of movies mm-hmm. in the late 80s about this particular event. If you live through the 80s and 90s, like it was sort of mandatory. There was a certain amount of movies that were kind of mandatory. Like you had to watch David Bowie and The Hunger, you know, like you had to. But, but Gothic and Haunted Summer were the two that to me kind of immediately sprung to mind. I had to review in my head which one was which. I remember the one has either Bill or Ted from Bill I think that's Haunted Summer. That's Haunted Summer. And it's Alex Winter who Mm -hmm. plays Dr. Polidori in that rendition. And there's quite a different take on it in Gothic's version of the same story. So we'll talk about that more on the patron show. show. But this episode is about that sort of haunted summer. That time period. Yes, that time period. And it's the summer of 1816. Dr. John Polidori is there. Yeah. 
Who else is there? Well, some pretty famous people are there. He is there because of Lord Byron, the romantic poet. You know, she walks in beauty like the night, you know, the famous dark-haired, limping, romantic satyr. <laughs> are you talking about me? <laughs> Your hair's pretty gray now. You don't get to live that long. But <laughs> and accompanying Lord Byron and Dr. John Polidori are Percy Shelley and the soon-to-be Mary Shelley, if they can just get that pesky wife out of the way. Their baby William and Mary Shelley's sister Claire. Claire Claremont. Half-sister or stepsister? Stepsister. What the, is missing from all the movies where everyone's romping around in sort of a horror-themed free love romp is that is baby William. Yeah. They never mention that he's there, but their, um, their second child is there. And it's, it's interesting that in this dark summer, it's preceded by this time in which Mary Shelley, who goes on to write Frankenstein, has had this pretty horrible year. She has an interesting life. She has very interesting parents. Yeah, like anarchist, of yeah, yeah, early so feminist. She, like people might know her, or might see her name as Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, mm-hmm. as the author of Frankenstein. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was fairly well known for her, what I guess, political beliefs. Yeah, and so her sort of unconventional feminism, which is very early on, before right, anything. 1700s. Yeah, exactly. Wow, right? And her father is... Godwin. He's a bookseller. But he also, was a, a, like a, a, a writer and an anarchist as well, right? Yeah. And, and we mean anarchy in, the, in its earliest sort of purist, no rules kind of incarnation, less so black sweatshirts and spray paint, you know? <laughs> They're part of a, a sort of larger free thought movement of which everyone that we'll be talking about has dipped their toes and other things into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and other things. <laughs> but Mary's had a pretty hard year. I mean, she's still very, extremely young. She's run off with poet Percy Shelley. So we're just skipping over her childhood. Well, I she, think we should lay the groundwork, right? Okay. So, so, so she, she's a girl. She, Not a lot happens. <laughs> Her mother dies very shortly after she's... Yeah, so she almost knows her mother through her mother's writing more, yeah, exactly. more than any memories of her mother. Yeah, because she's raised by uh, her father and her stepmother. And at the same time, her stepmother brings her stepsister into the picture. And so they're raised as sisters, basically, in essence. They're raised in a house where writing is revered. Because yeah. mm-hmm. the, the father's a bookseller and a writer, and her deceased mother was a writer. Mm-hmm. And writing is really kind of revered and really kind of held to high esteem. Yeah. And and there is probably an idea in Mary's head that she has opportunities that other women probably don't have on some level. I mean, not in, in like in a what like, sense. Not, well, that um, she maybe has the opportunity to write or she has oh, okay. the even the idea that you could write, I think, is sort of startling for that time period. If you didn't have a role model, where would you get that idea? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you might write for yourself, but the idea of it ever being published or that anybody else might see it in a larger context or that you were worthy of it in some level as a female in the early 1800s is sort of way ahead of time. Yeah. Not to get into either the movies too much, but mm-hmm. was it accurate that Shelley, Percy Shelley, came into the household, essentially? Yeah, he came into their lives. I mean, I don't know. Right. So, some of, Some of my information comes from movies, and I'm well aware that 
they change things you know, yeah. for the but story. Yeah, but he does ingratiate himself to the family. And um, and that's how he meets. meets yeah, and, it, and it's known that he has some money. I mean, the rumor is that he produced something at 14, and in actuality it was probably more like 17, but that he'd been paid for it. And he has some some backing from the family. So, From his family. From his family, yeah. Mm-hmm. What he neglects to kind of mention is that he is married and he has a child. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't keep poor Mary from falling into the trap that a lot of women fall into of like, gosh, he's pretty. <laughs> oh, he's a poet slash he has a motorcycle slash he's a rock star <laughs> yeah. slash, you know. But Mary, despite her upbringing of being able to have her own ideas and to live in the sort of way that her mother did, which was a very free love, free thought kind of way, it's kind of frowned upon when she decides to take up with a man who's married and has a kid. Yeah. Do as I say, not as your mother wrote. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so um, she takes off. With Shelley. With with Percy Shelley. Shelley. And her stepsister in tow. And they begin to live in, I believe, what is termed a menage a trois mm. of some capacity. But in Mary's life, what's probably more traumatic than the fact that her stepsister is also sleeping with her boyfriend is the fact that she has a child and then finds her dead. Everyone in this circle kept a diary, and almost all of them are available online, which is amazing. Yeah, that's They're from 200 years ago. We can see what everyone's doing on any particular day. Great for research. Yeah, which is great for research. So in Mary Shelley's diary... Found in March 1815. This is Monday the 6th. So for days she's talked about, you know, it's just sort of trivial things in the diary. Got up, had tea, nursed the baby, blah, blah, blah. And then on March 18th, it just says, find my baby dead, which is like... Oh, oh, that's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. Like, yeah, I I probably should have made like a little... Sorry to do that. I know a lot of people struggle with... Um, I've had issues with infertility and loss, and it's it's yeah. tragic. It's yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And I apologize for not giving um, a heads a, up to that a warning. Yeah, that is absolutely brutal. And so and that's the only entry for that day. Uh, that it goes on with some other little things that go on, but then what? Hap- she doesn't really rely on Shelley at this point in time. He's kind of he's not the most reliable friend. And Shelley's friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg has been a friend to her. Mm-hmm. She writes to him, and this is the letter that she wrote. My dearest hog, my baby is dead. Will you come to see me as soon as you can? I wish to see you. It was perfectly well when I went to bed, and I awoke in the night to give it suck, and it appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not wake it. It was dead then, but we did not find that out till morning. From its appearance, it evidently died of convulsions. She spends the next, you know, considerable amount of time dealing with this loss she talks about uh, in her diary she dreams of the baby a lot and it's written in the in the diary and she talks about warming it by the fire and it coming back to life and so you can see this kind of the seeds the of, seeds of, of this reanimation or the yeah. idea of reincarnation or reanimation also i think it's sometimes the intense loss that breeds periods of creativity though you can't see it at the time that you're in it sure just to deal with it so a year later, March of 1816, her stepsister meets up with a pretty famous guy. <laughs> in a lot of the movies, they, they make her out to be something of a groupie. 
Yeah. That she doesn't have a mind of her own. Yeah, like she's like the ditzy. The ditzy, like. Tag along. Tag along. Yeah, that isn't the case. Her journals are available, too. She was a writer. I mean, she grew up in the same house as Mary. There's no reason to expect that she would be anything other than also like a brilliantly educated young lady. I like this new take on Claire. Let's let's, let's give Claire some props. Yeah, I mean, she dealt with like, her fault was falling for, you know passionate crazy men Mm. who hasn't had that problem (laughs) do you expect me to say something (laughs) so that being said claire sort of misinterprets this idea that they should go meet up with byron yeah byron has he has some issues he's been giving her some attention (laughs) yes uh, so much attention that she's pregnant (laughs) right her feelings for him aren't exactly reciprocated I don't think his feelings for anyone other than himself are entirely reciprocated. I think that's, that's probably accurate. So it's now we're, we're it's the year eighteen sixteen. It's the springtime, and Lord Byron, also known as George Gordon Byron, he's twenty eight, recently separated from his wife for a host of reasons, least of which are adultery, impregnating his half sister, and sodomy, and so. It's, all right, so we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It seems like a lot, right? It seems so like he's a lot. impregnated his own half sister. His own half sister, yes. Okay. While he's also impregnated Mary Shelley's stepsister. Yeah, I mean, there's like there's a host of a lot of sister stupin going on. Yeah, there's a lot of sister stupin going on. There's um fair amount of just general adultery, uh, which includes a little bit of sodomy. Equal opportunity for Mr. Byron. I think he was just sort of like a hedonist mm. in every level, like sort of like those narcissistic hedonists who quite literally feed off of people. Yeah. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. So he's now recently separated from his wife and he takes off because he knows the heat's kind of on him at this point. Yeah. There was a lot of talk in the movies mm-hmm. about how controversial their life was and what a scandal it was, all of them, Mm -hmm. you know. But there's also a lot of celebrity. Well, I thought there would be stuff in the paper about it, and I could find very little, honestly, in the paper at all mentioning them. Really, when Shelley would publish a new book of poetry or something, there'd be an announcement in the paper. But I think our idea of celebrity changed at the time that we started being able to look at people. Mm. Like, they were famous, but they weren't famous people that you could look at and never identify. It's a different form of celebrity. Like, what happens, like, in the 1860s when we get, like, cardomania and you could have a little collection of celebrities is quite different from the celebrity that preceded that. Like, people might know him. They might be household names. They might have an inkling of things. But there's also this reverence for people who have this ability we haven't gotten to that point where we're we're talking about whether we can still love the art if we hate the artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. They could walk down the street and not be recognized. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. You know, th- there might be an inkling if it was in the paper that week that so and so was in town, and then you could sort of guess who it was. You right, know, there's but something... for the most part, yeah, and you're not going to ever run into like your your sphere of where you live is not that large. It's not like oh, I'll, I might be in New York this weekend and run into him. It's never going to happen. You know. Right. So Byron, you know, this is why we love poets, (laughs) crazy poets. This is a little article about his um, Sia poem to his wife. So uh, this is from the newspaper? This is from the Hampshire 
Telegraph and Naval Chronicle in Portsmouth, Hampshire, England, 22nd of April, 1816. Oh, so this is contemporary. Yeah. Two poems by Lord Byron on his domestic circumstances have attracted great public notice. His lordship's violation of decency and manly duty so soon after his marriage to Lady B, the lovely daughter of the highly respected Sir Ralph Milbank, was the cause of separation from her. And the design of these two poems is to throw the blame of it upon the weak and defenseless party. The poetry may be admired, but no language can vindicate his conduct. In such an instance as that of the separation, of which he so bitterly complains, circumstances, not verses, should have been written. The poems are called Fare Thee Well and A Sketch from Private Life. The former we insert, the other being written under strong, harmonious feelings is too personal for our columns. And I won't read the whole thing because there's a lot of of the moment language of which I will probably trip through. But it starts off Fare Thee Well and If Forever, Still Forever, Fare Thee Well. Even though unforgiving, never against thee shall my heart rebel. So it's it's got a sweetness to it, but then... It goes on to... Um, There's a turn. Yeah. Part of it, I think, is just he's doing it also. To, this probably is an element of his real sentiment, but it's also a bit to smooth over his culpability in the matter and mm-hmm. to make him seem less like the monster that he most likely is. <laughs> right, right. So he takes off, and with him he brings this Dr. John Polidori. But he's very young. He's only 20 years old. He's one of the youngest people to ever this time become a doctor. He's... Like a Dookie Hauser of his day. Yeah, he's like he is the Dookie Hauser of his day, <laughs> making all kinds of timely references. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's contemporary to the mo- to the movies about yeah. the subjects. So why not? Doctor Polidori keeps pretty elaborate journals, which his nephew William Rossetti goes on to um, edit and sort of annotate later on in life in which I pull a lot of information about what's happening because I feel like he's the most sort of impartial narrator in the story. Percy and and Lord Byron have, you know, like swirls of sort of heady nonsense around them, I think, on some level. Yeah, well, they're very invested in themselves, they're, each of them. Yeah, I mean, they, they're the lizard the, kings of their day. To the point where I'm surprised, that honestly, that they had such a strong friendship. The competition, and yeah. they're, they're of one mind, and that, that's very um, egotistical, yeah, hedonistic. Often when those two types meet, it's they'll be friends shortly for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then the fire burns out. Yeah, and then they very much clash after mm-hmm. that. I mean, part of it may be that they just didn't live very long. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely could be it. But this particular summer, they spend a lot of time together. And it starts in, in the summer that they called the year without a summer. So Mount Tambora erupts and causes this total shift in the way that the weather is felt all over. It was a massive eruption. I read about it just before we started recording. I think it was 100,000 people died. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it compares to Pompeii, but it seemed like it was worse. (laughs) Massive amount of people died. It was a massive eruption. And it caused this, I guess it's the ash that's like just slowly seeping over the United Kingdom. Yeah. It's blanketing it. It's darkening everything. It's raining constantly. It's dark. They said there was temperatures sometimes in the in the summer that were so cold that were it was they were getting frost on crops and people were going hungry because they just didn't have a normal summer. And to in amongst all this, Byron is in exile with with all of them in a villa in Switzerland. 
I love Switzerland. <laughs> well, um, Claire talks about it. She she referred to it as her ancestral homeland. It could be because her mother convinced her she was related to some royalty from that area. But um, for us, it, it really is probably like gen- our genetic homeland. A lot of Pennsylvania Dutch people are in actuality just Swiss German. <laughs> when I see pictures of Switzerland, and I'm sure I'm just seeing like from the tourist board or something, it looks so stunningly beautiful that I can't even comprehend it. Like when I look at those photographs sometimes, I'm like, how is that even real? I know. And it, when you see this area, it's like sort of a poor, like D-rate copy of it. Because yeah. <laughs> you can still get like lush greenery, rolling hills, but it doesn't have quite the same quality. Just saying, I'm just putting this out there. Okay. If someone would like to fund a summer <laughs> of me in a castle in Switzerland, I promise I will come out with uh, an incredible amount of artwork. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I could write Frankenstein. Uh-huh. I'm just saying that the quality of Strange Familiar shows I feel would just go way up. I'm just saying, it's just my intuition just tells me. Like, yeah, I, I would, would also pro- like what to, I would produce like, there would be amazing. If Bill Drummond would let us have one of the internships in the Curfew Tower in Ireland. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome for Scotland. Um, I would like that as well. Sure, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it all. Let's do it all. <laughs> I mean, likewise, the Shelleys and the Byrons, if you're doing it on someone else's dime, it's a lot easier to do. Right, exactly. <laughs> so this summer, this, this literal, there's, this, there's a cloud over Europe. It, yeah. And it's, it's this it's dark, dark summer. Dark. And they said a lot of artists and authors really kind of turned out some like very, very dark work in this year because of this. Byron doesn't necessarily expect them Claire just decides we should go. Well, I think she knows where he's going to be. Okay. There's the assumption that he'd want to see her because oh, she's okay. pregnant. and. Um, but it's not like he's expecting them. Not necessarily. And I've read varying reports as to how many times they may or may not have met each other before. You know, in movies, there's always like the moment where the two famous people meet and you're mm-hmm. like, wow, that must have been great to meet at that moment. But I think a lot of times life doesn't really work that way. It's like, wait, did we meet there before? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when was the first time we met? It wasn't this momentous occasion and things didn't go perfectly well and we didn't like meet each other and talk about um, being the Lizard King or anything. <laughs> but it is. You remember re- it very differently than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, there I'm is a parallel here because. The stories that they read from on the famous night is from the Phantasmagoriana. Oh, interesting. And if you'll permit us a minute and a half to talk about the way that we met, Lord Byron wasn't reading us stories. No. We had no social lives to speak of. Speak for yourself. I had no social life. And so I was really into like, in the 80s was really, in early 90s was really popular to do pen palling. And there was a whole world around zines and pen pal culture and doing things called friendship books which are very like victorian practice of how we passed along our addresses to other people it's a it's probably a whole episode in itself i was a zine guy yeah you were into zines and i was into the pen pal yeah you were a pen pal thing i was a zine guy i loved zines yeah i I probably mentioned it before my brother when i was about 14 said he was going to do his own skateboard zine i didn't know what a zine was I'm like what's a zine he's like no it's like a self-published magazine like, and he let me do the cover i think maybe the second issue or something he let me draw the cover and that was it for me 
I loved it so much. I was like, I couldn't believe like, wait, you can make your own, you can publish your own stuff. You don't have to have a publisher publish it. Mm-hmm. And he let me do the artwork. It was very encouraging. He, he let me do, I don't know how many issues he did, maybe five. I probably had artwork in every issue. I'm his goofy younger brother. And it was very encouraging. And it really did set the course of my life. So I loved zines from that moment on. Once I found out there were other zines and people all around the world were making zines, I became really involved in that world. Yeah, I remember I, going to like get the, the did Fact Sheet 5 come out like on a monthly basis? It used to. Yeah, yeah. Used to, it was a monthly review of zines where you could read about people's different zines and write to them. And so like basically it, it's proto-internet culture. Right. It's yeah. like niche proto-internet culture phones cost money so yeah. we we hardly ever even talked on the phone very rarely so uh we we both m- we met through an ad that you had placed for your uh, cassette label at the time mm-hmm. in a magazine called phantasmagoria which was probably had a lot more to do with the damned than it does uh <laughs> you think phantasmagoriana the book that'll be referenced later in this episode but i did think it was an interesting parallel i'd also done artwork and i believe i did the logo for phantasmagoria i believe i did the lettering later on not the initial oh, one. not that one mm-hmm. okay wow look at you <laughs> i would say what, what do you think the circulation was of that 50 copies 60 maybe i don't know i would guess in that range and so it was a it was a zine that was out of arizona but we actually didn't live that far apart from each other and, and from that we just started pen and became friends you know, eventually. Otherwise, we didn't have quite um, a Lord Byron-esque meetup, but, you know, close enough. So interesting. So they're reading from <laughs> they're, Fantastic They'll Sorry. be re- Sorry, reading dude. from the... I go off on tangents, but oh, I mean, to yeah. me, I think tangents, like, you always talk about how I keep you grounded so you don't go off and follow the fairies into the woods. I do that, like, mentally. I have a really hard time keeping on track with things. I'm Like, you're much better. You always plot out an outline. We do... Even if I do research, you help bring me in. But I think this one's going to be a little bit more freeform, and I hope you don't mind my wandering. <laughs> no, I think it's all right sometimes. Uh, you've called to mind Rob from Monster Fuzz. His nickname is Neil Digress Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I very much... Uh, Those guys are kings of getting off topic and just wandering through various ideas and then coming back. It's not really that far off because these these are proto-Goths. And that's, they really are. They really are. Like, yeah. and, and when Gothic came out, the movie Gothic came out, like that was required watching as yeah, hokey as it is yeah. on the rewatch. In the movie... In the movie Gothic, the Shelleys arrive by boat because we're at Lake Geneva in Switzerland. The date of which is actually recorded by Dr. John Polidari. And they've been trying to figure out, he and Byron, if they're going to be able to rent this villa and for how long they're going to be able to rent it. It's the Diodati Villa. The Diodati family owned it. They wanted to rent it for three years, but they weren't able to. Mm. They only were able to secure it for six months. They didn't end up staying that long because of military invasions close by but they have it for the summer and so they're sort of like getting house set up for the summertime and in the midst of this the Shelleys arrive with Claire and the baby and in Polidori's diary edited by William Michael Rossetti he remarks that Shelley looks consumptive (laughs) interesting (laughs) and that he keeps the two daughters of Godwin who practice his theories and that's an allusion to the the fact that they're of this uh, free love contingency some people say that they are staying at the same place, and there's a debate that they're at the same hotel or the same villa. In the diary, it's reflected that they're 
at least going to dine at separate locations. So it's more likely that they were very close by and yeah, not I, in the same villa. But they there are mentions that they did sleep overnight certain times. I read that they had to row back and forth. Rented the one right next door to him or something like that. Yeah, I've read yeah. The varying. The general consensus is they're in the same area. And then you start to see in like Polidori and Claire Claremont's and Mary's diary that they're spending a lot of time together. Yeah, that's for sure. There, I don't think there's a lot else to do. They do mention casually other people in the area. And Polidori is talking about going into town and meeting with people and having dinner. And he's growing a little bit jealous of Byron's celebrity. He says, introduced to a room where 20 people are, three ladies, and Lord Byron's name was alone mentioned, mine like a star in the halo of the moon, invisible. Mm -hmm. So he's a young guy and he's seeing Byron get all the attention. Mm -hmm. Even though, I mean, by rights, from what people have heard about Byron, they should be kind of appalled, right? In contemporary standards. Yeah. He's wicked. Yeah, of the time, he's not made very noble choices. Yeah. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. And so when I keep reading Polidori's diary, this is a passage. Breakfast with Shelley. Read Italian with Mrs. Shelley, dined, went into a boat with Mrs. Shelley, and rode all night till nine, had tea together, chatted. And so they, they begin this sort of ritual of spending every day together and then having these long conversations into the evening. And because of what's happening, you know, they're not seeing the sun. They're in darkness. Mary's depressed. They're poets. You know, things turn the way you do when young people start to talk about the supernatural and ghosts. So Mary and Percy have a second child by this point. Yeah, he never shows up in the movies, but he's there. William is there. And in fact, in one point, Polidori talks about taking him into town and gets him inoculated. Oh, interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, very early on, right? Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes people might have the idea that after a tragic death of one child, mm -hmm. 
when you have a healthy child. Mm-hmm. That that somehow negates the pain. Yeah, it sort of sort of replaces. And I think it's very important to keep in mind that that death of that first child, as it would any mother, mm-hmm. is going to haunt her forever. Yeah, that, that's going to permeate yeah. every aspect of the rest of her life. Yeah. And while there is a salve for some of those wounds in, in being a mother again, because she talks about that, that was one of the passages where I just like that gutted me. And she said, I just, I realized today I'm no longer a mother. And that, that was Oof, like, yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. brutal. So when we talk about their second child being there, mm-hmm. I think it's important as we're talking about this, not to forget about the first child. Yeah, and the accompanying sadness that's not going to magically go away. Right. Oh, yeah, here's... Uh, on June 2nd, I breakfast with Shelley, read Tasso with Mrs. Shelley, and took the child for a vaccination. It's fascinating to me how early that would have happened. Like yeah. In, the, in 1816, you're taking the child for a vaccination. Yeah, I wonder what they were vaccinating for. Smallpox, maybe? COVID? <laughs> Monkeypox? Monkeypox. Could have been any of the three. So they make a lot of how much they're drinking tea. It was a favorite pastime of Percy Shelley. I don't know how uncommon that is for England generally. They made it seem like it was a particularly, or maybe taking the time to have tea, and, and not tea as in like the, like having tea in the evening, mm-hmm. not as like the sort of mini meal, but more like having an extra drink mm-hmm. in the evening. And this was the time when the subject would sometimes change one night, Shelley starts to talk about how his father had wanted to take him out of school and put him basically in a psychiatric hospital, but that someone intervened and he was kept from that fate. And so they talk about madness on one evening and his own supposed madness while he was at Eton College. They also start to talk about scientific topics, including... Uh, one night they go to one of the neighbor's houses and they read an interesting memoir upon the subject of whether a physician should in any case tell a lover the health of the lady of his affections or anything that from being her physician comes this knowledge. My guesstimate is probably would have been helpful whatever diseases Byron and Shelley might have been banding about. <laughs> Bet they're all the same after this summer. Yeah. They go again on June 5th to the neighbor's house and they talk about somnambulism. Mm. I guess this sort of permeates in everyone's mind for a little while. Like all these topics are are bubbling up. Somnambulism, medical ethics, madness. You see where we're going here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then eventually on June 16th, uh, there's a, a notation of a sleepover, the Shelley sleepover. The weather is like it. They have to sometimes boat back to their, where they're staying. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly great, especially if you're staying up till one in the morning to boat back at that time period. Yeah, one article I read mentioned a lot of like a lot of thunderstorms. I don't know if they were caused there were more thunderstorms because of the ash cloud. Yeah, that's what know. they made it seem that it yeah. was like constantly rainy and I was like even more so than normal, I guess so. Mary makes this remark that one night she sat listening to a conversation between the two poets. What was the nature they questioned of the principle of life? Would it ever be discovered and the power of communicating life be acquired? Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. That night, Mary lay sleepless. So she's thinking about this idea of reanimation, whether it be reanimating her dead child Mm -hmm. or just her interest in the sciences generally. At this point, Dr. Polidori had broken his ankle. And so he's spending a lot of time just kind of laying around trying to let it heal. 
On June 16th, he writes, Laid up, Shelley came and dined and slept here with Mrs. Shelley and Miss Claire Claremont. I wrote another letter, went after dinner to a ball, where I was introduced to Princess something and Countess Patoctopoles, and I had with them a long confab, attempted to dance, but felt such hard pain was forced to stop. The ghost stories are begun by all but me. So the myth is that Byron sort of suggests to everyone he kind of challenges them. He challenges to all them write. all to write huh? some kind of fantastic story to pass the time. They're bored and they're stuck in the house. Aspects of that are entirely true. When everyone particularly started to write what became the famous works built out of this summer night is debatable. There's not much made of what of Claire's contribution, but she was a writer. And she, in fact, in her diaries, talks about how she wrote this story called The Idiot in fits and spurts, basically. And so part of it could have been done at that time, but it's not. there's not like a direct correlation between these evenings of ghost stories and that writing. But she right. was a writer. Shelley is actually the one who, who produces sort of the least during this time period. Byron suggests the topic of the vampire, and then Polidori takes that and runs with it and writes the story of the vampire. Mary starts writing Frankenstein, and all of this is born out of these evenings listening to Byron read from the Phantasmagoriana. Byron and Shelley leave for a time. They go off on a little sojourn together. i got to comment on what happens there. We don't really know. <laughs> that wasn't in the diaries. <laughs> My guess is some manner of debauchery. Good guess. It gives a lot of time for the remaining people in the house to sort of have conversations, start working on their writing. Mary and Dr. Polidori are pretty well known for their writings, during this time, Byron did manage to knock out a poem or two. <laughs> and he had started the idea of the vampire, which is where this idea that he wrote it started to, starts to, to take root. Yeah. He did not write the vampire. In April of 1819, three years later, the Noon Monthly magazine celebrated the story of the vampire, which they attributed to Byron. The description was fictitious. Byron had, in fact, in June 1816, begun to write at Geneva, a story with this title, in emulation of Mrs. Shelley's Frankenstein, but dropped it before reaching the superstition which it was to have illustrated. He sent the fragments to Murray upon the appearance of Polidori's fabrication, and it is inserted in his work. And then these are the facts as Rossetti is going over the information in the mid eighteen, uh, late 1800s. So Polidori writes The Vampire. Mm -hmm. For anyone taking notes, it's the story is called The Vampire, but vampire is spelled V-A-M-P-Y-R-E. And Lord Byron gets credit, mm -hmm. which he's already writing in his diary, mm -hmm. the doctor, that he feels overshadowed. Yeah, taken advantage of, leached off of. And this happens. It's published and Byron's name is put on it. I mean, they could have just a purely uh, financial end to it. Sure, but what a what, what a, a kick in the <laughs> yeah, kick in the gut for Doctor Polidori. And so he writes a letter, Polidori, dear sir, I received a copy of the magazine of last April, the present month, and I'm sorry to find that your Genevan correspondent has led you into a mistake with regard to the tale of the vampire, which is not Lord Byron's, but was written entirely by me at the request of a lady who, upon my mentioning that his lordship had said that it was his 
intention of writing a ghost story, depending for interest upon the circumstances of two friends leaving England and one dying in Greece, the other finding him alive upon his return and making love to his sister, saying that she thought it impossible to work up such materials, desired I would write it for her, which I did in two idle mornings by her side. So we can see what we're talking about here. This is in reference. The person making love to a sister, obviously, is Byron. And the person he's talking about, who he promises it to, is Mary. Mm-hmm. These circumstances above mentioned, and the one of his dying man, having obtained an oath that the survivor should not in any way disclose his decease, are the only parts of the tale belonging to his lordship. I desire, therefore, that you will positively contradict your statement in the next number by the insertion of this note. With regard to my own tale, it is imperfect and unfinished. I had rather, therefore, it should not appear in the magazine. And if the editor had sent his communication as he mentions, he would have spared me this mistake. But, sir, there is one circumstance of which I must request a further explanation. I observe upon the back of your publication the announcement of a separate edition. Now, upon buying this, I find that it states in the title page that it was entered into Stationer's Hall upon March 27th, consequently before your magazine was published. I wish, therefore, to ask for information about how this tale passed from the hands of your editor into that of the publisher. As it is a mere trifle, I should have no more objection to its appearing in your magazine as I could in common with any other have extracted it thence and republished it, but I shall not sit patiently by and see it taken without my consent and appropriated by any person. As therefore it must have passed through your hands, as stated in the magazine from a correspondent, I shall expect that you will account to me for the publishers, Messrs. Sherwood and Neely, having possession of it and appropriating it themselves, and demand either that a compensation be made or that its separate publication be instantly suppressed. Lord Byron said he knew nothing of this. Polidori goes on to basically say he's, he's threatening legal action against them. Glad he's finally standing up for himself. <laughs> so Dr. Polidori writes the story about this vampire that's obviously Lord Byron. Yeah, the idea of sort of um, this youth, you know, like um, what comes to be known is this vampire trope of uh, this sort of beautiful, youthful poet that we find repeated in like a lot of vampiric fiction later on it's like it's it's the setting for every Anne Rice novel that I mean (laughs) it's all there from the beginning and at some point Mary Shelley starts writing and she writes a remarkable work world-changing work as far as fiction goes called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus I have read this book have you yeah, many years ago, but I read it. Is it the one that starts off with Frankenstein? Is it that one? No, no it's not that one. Although I, I am waiting for my opportunity to say fire bad. <laughs> I know you were very much influenced by the Frankenstein version that Bernie Wrightson illustrated. I know that's one of your biggest influences. The illustrations for Bernie Wrightson's Frankenstein were literally what made me pick up a pen and start doing pen and ink. I got that book... Ooh, I don't know, I might have been 10, 11, 12 in that range. Is that contemporary to when it came out, or did it come out like in the 60s or early 70s? No, I think I got it shortly after it was published, probably. The illustrations are so fine in that they're just stunning. It's really, it's what made me pick up pen and ink to do drawings. If you want a copy, by the way, there is a new edition, Riverbend Comics, I believe keeps it in stock, so you can get Bernie Wrightson's 
you know, it's, it's Frankenstein. It's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's the book. It's not a comic book version. Mm-hmm. It is the book just illustrated by Bernie Wrightson. So you can pick that up from riverbendcomics.com. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so this is the, this is the blueprint for science fiction happens from this. It is incredibly important. When you read it today, it's there's it, you know, it's of the time and there's parts that seem naive and like there's too much coincidence happening. Like mm-hmm. I I think maybe modern authors would avoid just there's a lot of like the monsters in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. and, and I think probably modern writers would avoid that, but but you can forgive that sort of um I guess it's a little bit more naive approach. I don't want to say her writing was naive though. Like she, she's a fantastic writer. And I guess though, if your world is as small as it is in the 1800s, maybe things just happening to be in the right place at the right time is all you really know. It's an excellent point. Yeah. Although they they had opportunities to to travel much more worldly than most people. So she crafts this story about this young scientist who basically it begins to become interested in the secrets of life. And there are elements of somnambulism. Oh yeah. There are elements of... What you were talking about, galvanism? Galvanism, what they had heard in the Phantasmagoriana. So they've changed what we knew before as science fiction from ghost stories into a whole new realm. Yeah. Because we, we've almost made the spirit world into flesh. Right. And, I mean, there's this aspect of science, too, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, we're really on the edge. I mean, Darwin's coming soon, you know? Yeah, Darwin's uh, coming soon. I, I mean, Darwin's alive probably <laughs> at this point. I mean, the origin of the species is is on the horizon from this point. They're talking about the, that evening about will we ever basically be able to resolve death? Mm-hmm. So you have these elements in the story of this scientist wants to figure out the secrets of life and assembles this monstrous creature mm-hmm. and through science, essentially, mm-hmm. brings this thing back to life. And all of the implications that follow. Dr. Frankenstein is horrified by his creation. And you have this idea of something you make mm-hmm. literally taking on a life of its own. Yeah. And you're rejecting it. And you have sympathy for the monster. Mm-hmm. And you have sympathy for Frankenstein. But mm-hmm. the way it's written is... I think it would be very easy just to make the monster a hideous monster, right? Mm-hmm. But you have this point of view. It's like, you rejected me from the start. You were horrified by me. You wanted nothing to do with me. You made me. Mm-hmm. In a sense, you're my father. Yeah. And you want nothing to do with me. It's a really, I mean, it's a very layered story. For it being of the time, you know, I've read other contemporary horror novels. I haven't read The Vampire. We will be. So I don't know how that fits in, but other sort of contemporary horror stories, this really has layers that I, I think there's a depth to this story that is pretty incredible, mm-hmm. honestly. But sorry, I digress again. We have Lord Byron as the vampire. Mm-hmm. We have the idea of her putting her baby by the fire in the, her dream mm-hmm. and it comes back alive. So we have the idea of reanimation. Sure. Is Shelley woven into this symbolically? in some way yeah and is this not the idea that um from this death also that she um has new life as a writer sure yeah i mean there's a there's a lot of death and life symbolism and paralleling what happens to dr polidori the first edition of frankenstein 
is published anonymously. I believe it was deemed inappropriate for a woman to write Wasn't such everything. a thing. Wasn't <laughs> everything. But I mean, I think that was the reason why they published it anonymously. And then a second edition was published not too long afterwards. I think the first edition was like, what, uh, 1818 or something, 1817? Yeah, it's pretty, it's not long after this summer. How valuable must one of those first editions where it, her name isn't on it must be? I can't even imagine. And I think it was published in three volumes at the time. A short time later, it is published with her name on it, thankfully, you know, kind of writing the wrong for her mm-hmm. there. But it is like that parallel that happens, you know, somebody else's name is published on the vampire mm-hmm. and hers is, she's not allowed to put her name on it, at least at first. Yeah. Is she Percy's creation, which is run amok that he's, because of the way he's treated her in the past, is she, does she see herself as the as the, the monster? I mean, maybe that's where the sympathetic aspects of the monster, you know, the, the and when I say sympathy, like there are elements of the monster. It is a monster. It kills people. It's, mm-hmm. It does horrible things. But yet there are still parts where you go, you, you sort of uh, understand its motives and, and you feel for it. Like I said, when it says to Dr. Frankenstein, you rejected me. You mm-hmm. made me and you rejected the first thing you did was reject me. I'm not, this isn't an exact quote, mm-hmm. this, you know, paraphrasing. You can feel that, you know, like those, that's a sort of universal idea, I think. It's oddly, uh, I think, almost religious for people who were, or moralizing for people who were ardent atheists at the time, because it's sort of rejecting, well, it's sort of playing into this idea that um, it's only God that makes perfect creatures, and that when man attempts that, Mm. he fails. And that could be maybe less of a God thing, but you cannot go against nature kind of thing. Yeah, I think they would probably, they would have phrased it more that way. Mm -hmm. So Shelley had abandoned her for a time. Yeah, even after the baby was born, he left. He was afraid he was going to get an infection from her, but I think it was just an excuse. He was also having a relationship with her stepsister and countless other people. Um, There are other tragedies that happen around this time. Claire and Mary have an older sister who kills herself, and two months later, Shelley's first wife kills herself. There's a lot of death on the brain. It is interesting in a time before we had an idea of what other people around the world were doing, that these ideas are percolating at the same time, pose a little bit later, but not a lot. A lot of these ideas of um, rebirth and, and freedom are happening at the same time, and there's this constant fight for personal liberty, whether it be abolitionist causes, suffrage causes. So I guess the big question, you know, for, for any great work of art, could it have been made... You know, if if it was just a nice sunny summer, <laughs> a normal summer, could Frankenstein have been written? Yeah, could could punk rock have have started somewhere other than like the bleak England of the seventies recession era? Right. You know, a, could could the twenties have happened had World War One not have happened? Right. Like, it, is there cause and effect? Of course, you're affected by what happens in your natural world, but. Are you affected by what happens in the cultural world as well, if yeah. you have access to it? Are you affected by things that are happening in the, in the unconscious? I mean, I'm, and I'm sure the answer is to all those everything. Yeah, everything, yeah, everything together, everything mixed together, together in yeah. a big, heady brew. How great a story would Poe have written had he been there that weekend? Oh, right, yeah. Oh, they just would have all gotten drunk and not done anything. <laughs> <laughs> they come back to the UK. Frankenstein is published. Mm-hmm. Byron doesn't ever come back. He never comes back. no. And in fact, Shelley dies um, by the time he's 29. He dies just... So, yeah, so Dr. Polidari, Byron, 
and Shelley all die young. Yeah, Dr. Polidari takes his own life at 25. Shelley dies at 29, I think. He drowns. And Byron dies of a disease, but I can't remember what exactly they said it was. His baby dies, the one that they that he has with Claire. Mm. She, I mean, like, Claire and, and Mary, though, they live a long time. They do? Yeah. Yeah, for the time period. Yeah. We often talk about when we watch British television shows how there's only, like, six actors. Mm-hmm. I think that's also the case with the artistic communities. And so, like, when I realized that, like, this Byron, Polidori, Rossetti, and then the Rossettis are connected to a, um, a million different artistic movements as well, they go on to be huge fans of Shelley. Like, there's a huge Shelley revival in the late 1800s, and that's what sort of starts some of this interest again. Percy Shelley. Percy Shelley, yeah. yeah. I think Mary's always been popular in her own way because it's such a singular work. It, it really is. I mean, it's she, like she did Jules... write other things, mm-hmm. but it's such a statement and it's so different from everything that, that there was before. Yeah, I hesitate to say the word iconic, but I think in this this case it's really yeah. warranted. So Mary and Claire have uh, the last laugh. They live on to their 50s, I believe, right? They definitely live on longer than the rest of them. <laughs> All the men in the story die young. There's an amazing painting that's uh, is it the the funeral of uh, Shelley? Yeah, the funeral of Shelley. They they said it actually, it, though it's very dark. It it wasn't at one of the days that actually was very dark, but they they made it either symbolically or just oh for yeah, the painting. Scene. They said yeah, it's not realistic. To is it a pyre on the beach? Yeah, they something? have a, like a pyre on the beach. Yeah, they said it's not, which re- is the most uh, frightfully romantic way yes. I think you could. I, be. It is not realistic to the way he he was actually uh, buried, but. So I think maybe we'll just close this with Byron's last words, which were, Come, come, no weakness, let's be a man to the last. Now I shall go to sleep. Adopting a dog can be one of the best decisions you make in your life, but sometimes trying to raise a dog can leave you frustrated and overwhelmed. Maybe you have a new puppy who's mouthing and biting, needs help with potty training, maybe it has fear and nervousness issues, barking issues, maybe it's chewing on things it shouldn't be chewing on. If you need help with crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, and much more, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They can teach you what to do and also what not to do. With their relationship-based approach to training, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. They have online sources, video lessons, a secret Facebook group, and one-on-one options are, of course, available. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Again, you can find 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. For our patrons, we will be digging in more to the stories and a little bit more to vampires as well. Yes, we will be reviewing the ridiculousness of some aspects of the 1980s versions of this story, which are Gothic Haunted Summer and Rowing with the Wind, and then also 
the more recent 2017 take on it called Mary Shelley, which all deal with the, this, the same time period and, the same, and talk about how um, watching it at that time versus watching it now, how, how culturally we've changed so much that we see we always see the past through our own lens. And yeah, oh, this absolutely. is definitely an example of that. What a fertile moment in history that that many films have been made about this. I know. Wouldn't that be the, the very reason why you couldn't make another one? Because four have been made regarding this one particular event. I mean, the Gothic Haunted Summer and was it Rowing with the Wind? Yeah. They're all very close together. Two timeline. in the same year. Yeah. And it, one, two years apart from it. Yeah, so go ahead it, until the, the next episode comes out. If you have a chance to watch any of those, then when we talk about it, you can agree or disagree with our takes on it and... I'd be interested to hear if you remember it at the time, how you remember it now. I've done a lot of these watchings of movies that we thought were fantastic at the time. And then you go back and watch it and go, what was I thinking? Right. That's how the movie's horrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and looking at you, The Crow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Crows. The Crows. I love that. But I but now I, I just realized it was all because there were Joy Division lyrics in the comic. I think so, yeah. <laughs> That apparently held the entirety of my fascination with it. That, that movie is not good. No, no. Fire it up. Fire <laughs> it up. All right. So, patrons, we have more coming. It's different curiosity this week. Mm-hmm. This is something which is, there's quite a bit of it in our house. Your fascination with it has uh, bloomed over the past, what, three years or so? And I indeed have it too. Although my fascination with this kind of glass goes to the, the little Marys and little saints made out of this kind of glass. It's uranium glass. It's radioactive. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> it's a little bit radioactive. But it glows when you put a black light on it. It does. It's, it never ceases to amaze me when you shine a black light on this stuff, just how much it glows. And I have my entire life, since I was a little kid, loved glow-in-the-dark stuff. Me too. When the when the first fluorescent crayons came out in like 1982, 83, it's the first time I remember getting them, mm-hmm. I thought that they were the coolest thing ever. I've did always, you have a black light? That, I did have a black light. And you could look light. at the, the crayons in the black light and they just, oh yeah. It was the most amazing thing in the so world. That was so cool, yeah. When I was an early teenager, I had a whole... I changed my room into all glow-in-the-dark stuff for a while, and I had a black light. I painted stuff with glow-in-the-dark paint. Yeah, I thought it was the coolest thing oh, ever. Black I, light I, posters. I didn't care what they were. You no, know, on theme, no. I had a glow-in-the-dark Frankenstein. I did, too. From a cereal box. Yes. Yeah. I did have a glow-in-the-dark Frankenstein, because I remember going out. I'm sorry. Frankenstein's monster. monster. <laughs> Someone's going to correct It must have been like a Universal Monsters thing. It was very like... I don't remember. He kind of flipped around like... Did he have a mouth or something that was separate? I'm trying to remember. There was some part of him that was movable. And it it came from like, I want to say Captain Crunch or... I wasn't allowed to have that. It wasn't Captain Crunch. But it wasn't from one of the monster cereals because I wasn't allowed to have those. I wanted the monster cereals. Oh, yeah. But my mom never let me get the monster cereals. It's a crime against humanity that you weren't allowed some Count Chocula. I didn't care. I would have taken Booberry. I would have taken <laughs> Frankenberry. They were monster cereals. They even had a, they had a Wolfman one, I think, for a while, I think. Yeah. Or a mummy one, too. I don't Anyway. You could have a monster for breakfast. I know I wanted a monster for breakfast. We all want a monster for breakfast. Instead, I got Cheerios. You'll have a wheat field for breakfast today. Yeah. 
I always love glow in the dark stuff, and I have renewed my love in the wake of your love for uranium glass. I started to collect glow in the dark things that appeal to me, not just any random glow in the dark mm-hmm. thing, but mostly it's rosaries and saints and stuff. I love that stuff. It's not necessarily always uranium. There are some other glow in the dark elements elements that you can that you can get glass in and. I think it's generally called uranium glass. Yeah, and precursor to that is Vaseline glass, which has a a very similar glow when you put a black light on it, but it appears more like the color of Vaseline. It's a lighter color. So we have tonight shot glasses. Yes. Whether you drink out of them, you can do your own research. I've read varying things from it's about the same amount of uranium that's in leaded glass. I've heard it's a... uh, I don't know. My suspicion is that if you drank out of it every once in a while, it probably would not kill you any more than anything else that's happening in the world today. But, but do your research. But do your research. For, that's for our you. part, we put them on a shelf and put a black light on them. Yeah, I don't actually ever eat or drink out yeah, of any of but, them. Yeah, you make your own choices with that. Mm-hmm. We have three of these, correct? Yeah, two small ones and one kind of larger one, which could be a shot glass. It could also be like uh, sometimes I've seen them referred to as toothpick holders. Okay. But it's sort of like an exaggerated, like a slightly taller. I have a lot of uranium glass that I sell out of the shop at American Daydream, but I don't particularly like to send that through the mail. Right, sure. Shot glasses, though, they're gonna, they'll be fine. Yeah, we can pack those Yeah. well. We'll try to take some neat photos of these with the blacklight on them so they, they glow real nice so you can see what we're talking about. We'll put that photo in the show notes. If you click on the photo, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that or other curiosities of the week. Also at Etsy artwork, originals, and prints, copies of my books. Some of my music is there, Strange Familiars t-shirts. We still have some of the High Strangeness tour shirts left. Get them while they're hot. The original Awoken Tree shirts are there, and much more. Go ahead and check it out. Our shop name is Lost Grave, but if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff's going to come up. While you're on Etsy, check out Chad Shop, Ruck Rabbit Outdoors, and our friends at Karmic Garden as well. For those of you who didn't see, I did an original piece of art on a new cover of Department of Truth. It's called a sketch cover. For those of you who aren't familiar with the concept, it's the publisher publishes blank covers. They're called sketch covers, and you're meant to take artists to do original artwork on the cover. It's kind of a neat way to click a comic with some original artwork on it. So I did a different Mothman, an original piece, to go with the Mothman that I had done for my variant cover for Department of Truth earlier. These are available together from Riverbend Comics, riverbendcomics.com. They have it. Check it out. I'll be doing more of these sketch covers in the future as time allows, but they have the first one. So go ahead. Again, that's riverbendcomics.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stone Breath. If you want to hear more or purchase music by Stone Breath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars, we're on Facebook. Wow, are we 85? We are. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Strange Familiars. There's also the Strange Familiars Gathering Group on there. You can sign up for that and talk about all kinds of cool paranormal stuff people share stories and memes and artwork and so forth strange familiars is on instagram 
what are we, 48? <laughs> At Strange Familiars. <laughs> That's one word. Please follow us on Instagram. I want to feel popular. Yeah. Um, I, I, like, I, how long do you get a blue check? Like, it's a lot, know. isn't it? I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, if you're on Instagram, please give us a follow because it makes us feel better. I wake up in the morning, I, I see new followers, and I feel validated. <laughs> <laughs> and you can always find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.